Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 314, and today's guest is Corey Munchback, CEO of Blueconic. There is no set rule on how one becomes a CEO of a tech company, and when you look at Corey's career path, it is one of the main reasons why I encourage people to work for high-growth startups. She was employee number 17 at Blueconic eight years ago and was announced as the company's CEO earlier this year. My point isn't that you should join an early stage company because it is the best shot to a CEO role, but it is a perfect example of the career progression that one can experience if they are dedicated and are a top performer. So if you are interested in becoming a CEO someday, then you are in luck as Corey shares some great advice. Blueconic is a leading pure play customer data platform that liberates companies' first party data from disparate systems and makes it accessible wherever and whenever it is required to transform customer relationships and drive business growth. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Corey's background story and how she got her career started as a research associate at Forrester covering the MarTech industry how she landed at Blueconic in the early days of the company and how they were able to gain traction initially, all the details about Blueconic in terms of the company's platform today and the value it provides to customers, lessons learned since becoming a CEO, how Corey thinks about the culture at Blueconic, the future of the MarTech stack and how AI will play a role, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, if you are listening to this podcast, then it is highly likely that you are interested in the founder or executive journey and all the lessons learned around building companies. So please make sure you don't miss any future episodes by subscribing to the VentureFist podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or SoundCloud. And oh, please don't forget to leave us a review because it really, really helps us out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Corey. Corey, thanks so much for joining us. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you because we had done one of our videos uh, that we call CXO Briefing for Venture Fizz. So that's like more of an umbrella overview of a company, what you're doing, your growth plans, hiring, culture, all that type of stuff. But I'm really excited to talk to you today because we're going to talk more about the full story of your backgrounds, obviously the uh, career progression at Blueconic, which I think is amazing, what you guys are doing, and obviously some other stuff. So as we kind of launch into this, I, I do want to talk about something that I think is very impressive when you look at your career path. So I just thought that would be a perfect starting point. So um, what advice would you have for other folks <laughs> on making that journey to a CEO? Because you joined Blueconic at one point in time and yep. went through multiple career progressions to the point where now you are CEO of the company. So what advice would you have for others on making that you know career progression to that point? Yeah. You know, okay, I, I'm going to start with the disclaimer that I think is actually really important, which is luck and timing just have so much to do with it. And I say that in part not to take away from the more practical advice, but I just think it's important to remember that. Like, I, I recognize that it looks like, you know, sort of this linear up and to the right and all that that wasn't necessarily the plan. I didn't set out for this to be um, what happened. And a lot of that, again, was just luck and timing and being in a great uh, circumstance that is really not necessarily like widely available, right? You can't necessarily go out and say, I'm going to find a company where uh, you're going to be employee 17 in a market that's going to grow with a founder CEO who, you know, really commits to helping you grow and, and become their successor, right? A lot of things had to fall my way. And a lot of the cards had to be dealt very, very fortunately for me over and over, over a long period of time. Um, and so uh, if it doesn't happen for you, like, I just, that's not your fault, right? So you didn't do anything wrong, I think is sort of the, the what I'm trying to say about that. Um, I do think that the things that I will maybe say I get credit for, or like we're more planful in that journey um, is like, I'm really dedicated and uh, I really kind of go all in with the company. <laughs> uh, I'm sort of stubborn and loyal to a fault. And so I think that level of investment, especially at a startup, showing that even though you're not a founder, you're incredibly committed to the outcome. Um, again, like that, that was a big piece of this. Like I really uh, showed from early days that this is something I wanted to be a part of and help to shape. Um, and that was again, lucky and well rewarded, but that was a really deliberate choice. Um, I also think it's really important to kind of balance the combination of there's the operator piece of working at a company like this and being an executive, 
Um, but there's also kind of the market side of things. And so I came to Blueconic because I'd been an analyst at Forrester. I'd covered the marketing technology space. That was kind of my, my in. Um, but I really needed to learn the operating side of the business. And I think the best operators that I've seen, regardless of CEO or similar, are folks who really understand both halves of that equation. They're really exceptional uh, operators, whether they're marketers or uh, salespeople or customer success, right? Whatever their discipline is, but that they couple that with a really nuanced understanding of the market that they're operating in and sort of how the business works. And it's that combination that I think being curious enough and excited and passionate about the problem that you're solving um, and then being able to translate into how you're solving it is really critical stuff to then kind of being able to rise through the business and adapt as the business changes and the needs change, right? I was employee 17, we're over 180 people. It doesn't look a lot of the same way now that we're 10 times the number of people and all of that kind of good stuff. So that adaptability and curiosity, I think are the other things that have helped me be successful as we've grown and changed and I've gotten to grow and change along with us. Well, it's, it's very interesting that how your career progressed. And it's actually something where I'm like, you know what, I could probably have a whole podcast talking to you about this. Uh, but I think it's going to come out organic throughout the, the conversation too. Cause there's, I definitely have like a deeper level of questions that I'm <laughs> trying not to ask you. Cause I'm like, this will end up being the whole podcast, but let's, let's rewind the clock and talk about your background story. So like, where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Yeah, totally. So I grew up, um, in Boston, right outside of Boston, um, I had this revelation a couple of years ago that like I've literally lived my whole life on basically the same 10 years, 10 mile stretch from Milton to uh, Chestnut Hill. I went to Boston College um, and now I live in West Roxbury, which is literally on the commute from home to BC. So like my whole world is some iteration of like the Turtle Pond Parkway, VFW Parkway, for those of you familiar with the Boston uh, Boston world. Um, and I think what I say that and like why that was kind of a cool realization was also like my roots have gotten really deep here now. I've read, I've been here a long time. I care very deeply about kind of the community. Part of why I took the role at Blueconic initially was to be able to be more plugged into the Boston tech community um, and the startup world here and, and sort of be able to have that experience more. Um, I, what I was like was a child is probably a very similar version to how I am now, uh, fairly opinionated, very high energy, um, very curious and uh, loved to read then as much as I love to read now. That would be sort of my my miniature version of myself when I was a kid. <laughs> now you studied political science at Boston College. Yep. Uh, you graduated in 2009, right? Yes. Okay, so <laughs> I'm always fascinated. This would be a good thing. I'm sure somebody's done research on this, but how much of your, when you graduate, the economic conditions at that point in time, how much that affects that person's career? I would be fascinated to see research on what that means because I graduated from college in 94 and it wasn't pretty. And you had to like, just find a job basically. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, that so, was it. Yeah. 2009. Like that's when I started VentureFit because literally I was doing recruiting as an executive recruiter. I had no search work, zero. So I'm like, I have this website idea. Maybe I'll start this. And you know, it ended up being a great idea. But at the time I was like, what am I going to do? Cause I have nothing going on. The economy was that bad. So yeah. you're graduating from BC, like, okay, world, here I am. <laughs> yeah, no. And I absolutely, to your point, it's, it's anecdotal, but when I think about kind of my group of friends, I think a lot of folks went to graduate school sooner than they might have done because the job market was so poor. Um, maybe they wouldn't have ended up doing that. Actually, one of my friends I admire most in the world, um, Sarah, went to law school, very good law school, was an incredible lawyer, hated it so much. And now she's a teacher in New York City and she's an incredible teacher. She's just amazing, right? So for better and for worse, uh, you know, you take these different things. For me, um, I went to Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in the research administration division for my first year, um, which was, I learned a ton. Um, one of the things that it sort of prompted my fork was that after my first year there, I applied to get my uh, master's in public health and I was going to kind of go that path. Um, at the same time, though, I got the job offer at Forrester um, to go be a research associate. And it was a decision between getting my master's or going to Forrester. And because what of the, opened the door at Forrester, because that's, you know, that's... yeah, also a BC connection, actually. So my um, one of the people I worked with, I worked at the um, Boise Center for um, International Studies and Religion when I was at BC. And the professor, Eric Owens, who um, ran the Institute, his wife, Leslie, who's amazing and brilliant and just wrote an incredible book, uh, actually, was at Forrester. And they weren't hiring when I graduated. And so a year later, 
Leslie got back in touch and said, Hey, you know, we started hiring again. We still think you'd be a good fit. Like, would you apply? And in fact, I didn't even get that first job at Forrester that I applied for, but then they called me back and said, Hey, you know, we don't think you're a right fit for this team, but we have another role on the CMO marketing leadership team. Would you interview for that one? And I interviewed for that role with David Cooperstein, who um, was, was, if not the single most important force in my career, uh, darn close to it. Um, I ended up getting that job and was deciding between the two. And to your point about the economy, I was sort of spooked about taking on debt to go to grad school at that point. I thought, you know what? I still want to get my PhD one day, but Forrester, it's a research organization, right? I will still learn all these skills about how to write well and how to communicate well and all these things. It's just in marketing versus in political science, which is what I wanted to ultimately do. And I literally said to Coop in my interview, I was like, I probably will be here for two years and then I want to go back and get my PhD. And he was like, okay, great. Uh, and as you might imagine, fast forward, right? I clearly did not end up following through on that commitment, but that's like what it was. I graduated to that, uh, started at Forrester a year later, um, was there for five years and then started at Bluconic in 2015. So not in any way, shape or form the trajectory I had planned for myself at any point. And yet here we are. <laughs> Okay, so at Forrester, you're you know obviously an analyst, so you're doing research briefs and talking to you know the vendors, right? And you're probably doing a lot of speaking, like so. Great experience, right? For coming out of college, right? So that certainly must have teed you up to join one of the software companies in the space. Like, did you know of Blue Conic like as an analyst? No, I didn't, and they were still so early. So the way that happened was. Um, I was covering marketing tech, as I said, I wrote the first wave on the marketing clouds, so to speak. Um, and a former colleague who's actually now on our board, Suresh Vital, had been at Forrester, had left, um, had gotten to a some other startup that had gotten acquired by one of the marketing clouds. And I'd reached out to Suresh thinking, hey, you know, maybe I could come for work for you. Like that's, you know, I want to leave. I want to get my hands dirty, right? I love, Forrester was amazing, to your point, incredible experience on so many levels, so many smart people. Um, but what I wanted to do was like do stuff. I was writing about it. I was talking about it, but I wasn't getting the satisfaction of like, well, what does this look like in real life when, you know, you have this strategy, but then what do you do and what problems do you solve and all of that? And so I really wanted to get in there. Um, so I'd reached out to Suresh and he said, you know, I think actually you should meet these two guys, um, who had just moved to Boston. They are Dutch originally. They have this company called Bluconic. Um, it's a product that they spun out of a previous company. You should go meet with them. And so in like September, October of 2014, I went to meet with them. Um, we sort of had this just great discussion. And long story short, they hired me uh, a couple months later as a director of product marketing and started. But I had not heard of them. They were like literally hadn't even hit the US market really when I first met them. They had just moved here from the Netherlands, um, only had European customers. So in that respect, it was kind of a leap of faith. It wasn't like one of the, a lot of the analysts do get to go, you know, to companies they've covered and known for a really long time. For me, it was not like that. It was sort of Suresh's word for it, meeting them and feeling like this could be really hard and challenging. Um, I'll do it for a year and like, it'll be great and I'll learn a lot and then I'll move on. Again, me, I have like great plans that I just don't end up doing a great job of following through on, it turns out. Well, one would think, um, and you know, again, we're going to talk about your career path. You're the reason why I work with startups, right? I love the career progression, the opportunity to join a company that's at that stage and have your hands involved in so many pieces. Whereas you are, I mean, I'm sure... I don't know, I'm being hypothetical here that there are some naysayers of like, you're going to leave Forrester, the publicly traded research, you're writing the first wave for this meaningful and you're going to go to a 16 person startup. You must be insane. Actually, in fact, someone from Forrester said to me, um, I hope you're prepared for this company to be out of business in a year. That was, <laughs> that was about how well it was received that I was leaving. And candidly, like I, I think that was actually part of the fun of it. And I go to the point about luck and timing. I was prepared for them to be out of business in a year, but I was young enough and I like, you know, financially secure enough and all of these things that I could make that choice. And that's again, like where I talked, I go back to BC a lot and I'm very involved in the Shea Center for Entrepreneurship there. And I talk about this with the students all the time, which is like, you only 
it only gets harder to make kind of riskier or let's call it less certain. I don't know about risky, but less certain choices as you get older, whether it's because you have kids or a partner or elder parents or health issues, like whatever it can be. Um, so I was in a position where it like sort of didn't matter if it was out of business in a year because I was going to go get the experience that I was looking for. And that just made a lot of sense to me. So I think in that regard, again, to the point of, I had no idea what to expect. This has been such a fortuitous lightning in a bottle experience for me over and over and over again. But like, I was able to make that choice back then and it was fine. So that's it, like, yeah, there were tons of naysayers, but I, I didn't, it wasn't that I went in defiance of them. I was like, yeah, it's exactly the point. Who cares if it's out of business? So what? I still did what I set out to do. Yeah. And like you said, that experience you would have received just one year into it is something that's exponentially greater than, you know, being at a larger company based on what you would have accomplished. But fast forward, you're still there. I'm still all there. Right, so, Success. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So what was the product initially? Like, I want to talk about what the product is now, of course, but when you initially joined, like what was it something similar? Yeah. So conceptually, yes. I mean, one of the coolest things about why I was excited to go uh, to come, go, come, whatever you want to think about it as, um, was we hadn't decided like what our identity as a platform was going to be. So my first kind of assignment from our former CEO and always founder, Bart, was like this category of customer data platform, CDP, this guy named David Robb is writing about it. Are we going to be one of those? He sort of says we are one are we going to be that? And is like, this going to be our strategy kind of going forward? And so what an incredibly cool, like proposition, come here and help us figure out what this platform is going to be called and like what it, we're going to talk about. And so just total greenfield of problems and opportunities to kind of come and solve. Who are we, how do we talk about it? What are we going to say to the market? Um, so obviously in, you know, a decade of, of product development, the platform is vastly more incredible and superior to what it was then. But fundamentally, the problem that we were trying to solve then is exactly the same one as we are now, which is that marketers need data that is unified in a way that supports their need to activate on it. And that looks very different for marketing than it does for analytics or for governance or for legal. And so you need data in a certain schema and a certain structure in support of how marketing uses it. And if you add in the additional layer of that being consented and privacy compliant data, which has been something, a superpower of ours because of our roots in Europe and having so many customers there and GDPR being way ahead of the US on privacy and these other things. Um, that's been a huge tailwind for us. Um, but yeah, like, so the fundamental problem that we we solve has evolved and morphed and become more essential. But the concept was what it was. It was just like building out the scaffolding around that or like, what is our go-to-market? Who do the right companies to sell this to? All of that stuff hadn't been sort of figured out yet. And I got to come in and like work with the founding team to figure that out, especially in the US, right? That was the other part of it that they needed to figure out. Like, this is what we did in Europe through a partner channel, what's it gonna look like here? So like all those early stage problems that I got to come in and and work on and learn about while I was also solving them. It was amazing. And what was it like uh, entering the US market where marketers probably were like, wow, this is a good concept yet, does this really exist, right? So you're like creating this category and marketers not really, they're not there yet because it just hasn't been available. 100%, I mean, this was, the first six months we had our our you know classic startup pivot where one of the big assumptions from the founders had been because of their traction in the Netherlands, this selling into sort of enterprise by Dutch standards, they thought they'd be able to sell into enterprise here. And like for all sorts of reasons that that hypothesis did not hold. So then we had to make sort of the classic pivot of like, okay, <laughs> if that's not the case, we've got to show traction. Let's go down market. And who do we start with? What are those early customers going to look like? Um, what are the use cases that we solve for them? And show that initial traction, all with a long-term eye. I think this is where Bart had amazing foresight, is knowing that we need to move up market, but it's much harder to move from enterprise down than it is to move from small up. And so that was a really specific choice that we made. And sort of to be accretive and and build up from there, which is something we've done, I think, remarkably well over the years. Um, 
And that's where we sort of the first three years though, we're like product market fit in the most classic sense of the term, right? Like what are, who does this resonate with? Why does it resonate with them? And is there enough of a market there for us to do that? Or is that nice, but it's actually kind of a distraction that it's not great that we would sell into them because there's not that many customers who are like this, right? Or things like that. Um, and so really the the flywheel kind of kicked in more in like 2019, took those first couple of years to really get that feeling of it. Um, and and now it's, okay, well, where what are the additional verticals? You know, How does that kind of expand from here? But it was a lot of trial and error in those early days, a lot of churning out customers that we brought in, right? Going through that whole exercise. But 2019 and since then has been a real, um, like you you feel the meatiness of it and you sort of get that actual SaaS flywheel starting to spin, which has been pretty cool. All right, so let's fast forward to today. So like what's the category that you guys are in, like the types of customers that you're now working with? Yeah, I mean, look, I one of my favorite things uh, about having been at the company before we had customers compared to now is I don't take a single one of them for granted. And it gives me no end of joy when we close a new customer or when an existing customer you know, is an advocate for us. Like I just live for those kinds of wins. Um, and so, you know, we have uh, 300 customers globally, some really, really small that are supported by partners, some much more household names that folks would know, right? Colgate, all the VF Corp family of brands, the North Face and Vans, um, Michelin, uh, Molson Coors, right? We just have this incredible um, selection of brands in in all kinds of industries now. And what I continue to find totally fascinating is the variation and how they're all grappling with these problems that I talked about, right? The deprecation of third-party cookies, the need to be more privacy compliant, how to get more operational efficiency out of their marketing programs. Everyone shares this kind of common description of things that they're grappling with, but you don't have to go very far down to get into a nearly infinite arrangement of what that kind of looks like in real life. I often use the analogy that CDP is kind of to marketing, like what hunger is to people. You know, everybody is hungry and we all eat, solve that problem with food. But if you're a vegan feeding a family of 12 versus, you know, uh, someone who's paleo, who only does fine dining, those are just going to be really different solutions for you, right? And so I think that's what's always interesting is like the way in which we have to meet our customers' needs in a lot of different ways and a lot of different configurations, different use cases, all of that. Uh, it's kind of this like unending Rubik's Cube that we get to solve for, which just keeps the work really interesting, right? Every customer, I, I should say like every customer is different. They all think, right, they're snowflakes. All snowflakes are made out of snow. So it's about finding that right balance of like, what is the snow? And then what is it that makes the flake? And and how do we make sure that we can scale at the snow level, but really meet our customers' needs in a specific way based on kind of their variation of, of snowflakiness? And how, how do you make those decisions based on the product roadmap of releasing features based on a market need versus an individual company need? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things, right? I think it's coming back to what I just said around the commonality of the problem and then having conviction that our approach to solving it is the right one. And I don't mean that in like a uh, like a patronizing way, but that we often will go, for example, to prospects who are saying, you know, this is what we're trying to do. And we'll say, you know what? We actually can't do it like that. This is the way we would solve for it. And shockingly, it took a long time for me to get confident around this. But more often than not, they say, oh, that's actually a really interesting way. I think that would actually work for us too. And so it's this discussion really. And so I think it's, again, it goes back to like, what are the problems that we're solving? And then having a lot of conviction and clarity and data around, this is why we chose to solve it this way. And here are the inevitable kind of trade-offs or the consequences that might come from the way that we did it. If you're comfortable with that, then I think we can be a great fit together. If you need something totally different than what we're describing, that's okay too, right? The thing about software companies that is so critical is it does you no good to sell a customer that's not a good fit for you. And so, you know, I think that really holds us all accountable to not just selling a customer to say that we sold them, but really to be able to say, you know, here's what it looks like when you're working with us three years from now, here's how we kind of get you there, but you've got to be comfortable with what we're going to be able to provide and why. Um, and that often means like we're not the right fit and that's totally okay. Um, we're not in this to be, you know, something to everybody. We've got to be the right thing to everyone. And so it's a mix of, again, 
confidence around this is why we built it this way. This is what we think the pros are, and this is why you will benefit. Uh, it's on us to make sure that you feel good about that choice. Um, but ultimately, of course, there's going to be folks who are like, for whatever reason, this is not the right fit for us, uh, at least not right now. One of the other things that I think is so great about our approach is we'll do that. And sometimes we don't win the business, but uh, more often than not, a couple of years down the road, they come back again because maybe we were right. And and I'm kind of the, those boomerang deals. Those are kind of the extra sweet ones. When uh, we planted the right seed, we were patient uh, and it comes back around to us. So. Now, Blueconics raised capital throughout the years. Uh, from what I gathered, the most recent round was a growth investment led by Vista in 2022. Um, so what's the current state of the state of Blueconic? Yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, we're in a lot of the same boat that everybody has been in when the markets have changed and everyone's taking more scrutiny at their budgets and all of that. Um, I, again, will say it more times than you probably want me to say, like luck and timing. Um, we're really lucky that we have um, exceptional uh, proof points that make our technology still essential, even as people are looking at, you know, where can we trim? Where can we cut back? Um, cookies are still going away, right? December is next month. January, when Google moves to topics and all of that is still about to happen, right? We're still seeing massive dislocation in marketing from a lot of these pressures, same thing for CCPA and all these different privacy regulations, um, you can't not have an answer to that. Um, the approach you might make and the way you buy that might look a little bit different, maybe a little bit more um, mitigating for risk. But fundamentally, you know, we're really fortunate that we've positioned the software and what we do as being really essential to how companies are going to be able to uh, navigate some of this stuff, quite frankly, and be there on the other side of it. Um, and I, you know, again, if you look at sort of the the growth of the business, that's been really the the case from the jump. Um, I also think then the this was luck for me, clearly intentional by our co-founders. Um, the Dutch mentality, right, is very conservative to be super cash efficient, um, just generally be a really well-run, tight financial company. Um, that is a good thing under the best of circumstances, but it's been an extra good thing when the circumstances have been harder, right? So that we've always maintained control of our own destiny um, and been really thoughtful about that. And among the many things I am thankful to my predecessor for um, instilling that in me when I was still a very impressionable uh, kind of young pup figuring out how do you run a software company and learning all these things, um, to have learned it in that very hyper-disciplined um, context is something that is going to benefit me for sure as a leader in general, but um, I think really showed that uh, itself in its value over the last year or so. Um, so I'm really thankful and we're lucky for that. And of course we keep executing really well against it, right? It doesn't just happen to us, um, but that is something that maybe unlike some companies that were more in the heavy 100% growth of venture world and sort of all of these crazy valuations, um, we've sort of stayed lower than that really from the beginning. And so um, this hasn't been too difficult for us, honestly, all things considered. And I feel really lucky about that. I think it ends up being one of those with the current state of the market being what it is, ends up being a positive trait of the Boston tech scene because very rare do you have a company that just is that type of mentality of raising hundreds of millions of dollars to grow at all costs. And then all of a sudden the market changes and they're like, what do I yeah. do? Uh, you know, the way that the Boston scene tends to operate, which in the go-go times, it's probably looks very poorly. You're like, why would you do it that way? But in times like this, it's, you know, that having... Uh, consistency of growth and building a business with metrics and value and customers, you know, that fundamental stuff ends up working over the long haul. So it's remarkable. In fact, when we were raising our series B, which is back now in 2019, um, it took us almost a year to find investors, not because the business wasn't good, but because we didn't want to check as big as they wanted to write. Uh, which would have ballooned our valuation. And so we we had to go through the kind of the opposite problem of an arduous fundraise because we knew how much operating capital we needed. We didn't want to raise more than that just to have it. That's not our style. Um, and so I think that was like my first real lesson to your point about the go-go times. That was when people wanted to write a huge check and get a big piece of things, but to have been saddled with that would have been so problematic uh, and in general, but also now given the way the world has changed. And I think, you know, one of the things that that has paid off extra well for us is during that process, the gentleman who ultimately led Vista's investment um, out of the Endeavor Fund 
was at a different VC back then, met us. We didn't want him to write his check as big as he wanted to write. When he moved over to Vista, he was able to call us back um, and say, you know, I know you guys are good for what you say you're going to do because you told us then and now you've done it. Um, so patience, luck, timing, right? All those themes keep coming back in their various forms. Um, but being true to ourselves and sort of what we're good at uh, has paid off for us in a, in a very real way. Okay, so going back to your career path again, so yeah. not to make that the emphasis of this podcast, but I don't, you know, it's not common to see somebody join a company as a director of product marketing. I don't know if all these are the right titles, but then VP of marketing, chief operating officer, president, CEO. So that's a career path that uh, I think is extraordinary, and it says a lot about you and the company. Um, so stepping into the CEO role earlier this year from Bart, founder CEO, like would have been that those biggest lessons learned making that transition, you know, the things that you didn't know that, you know, now type of stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, I'm still learning them. So I want to be really clear about that. It's been almost a year. Um, but I'm, I still feel very much like I'm kind of studying this and figuring out exactly what that looks like. Um, I think there's a couple of things that have been maybe, general, um, but certainly specific to me and the role that I was uh, in roles I was in before um, versus now. So one of them that has been really disorienting and hard for me is that um, when I was president and COO, right, I was effectively kind of Bart's right hand. And part of why we worked so well together is that we were very complementary in our skill sets and what we got joy out of and where we were good at things. Um, I don't, I don't, like where I used to have to figure out like, okay, well, whatever Bart's doing, I'm doing other things. I'm now in the seat of having to be the one who determines like what things I am working on. And that has been much harder day to day than I would have ever imagined. Um, again, I think bias to being like, well, I know what I'm doing in terms of the company. I know what the company needs, but it, it was much more dislocating than I would have expected that I um, need to make sure that I'm balancing a lot of variables when I think about my time. So the way I kind of think about it is there's obviously very high value stuff for the business. There's less valuable things for the business, but there's also the things that I'm really good at and enjoy doing. Uh, and there's other things that I maybe not so good at or don't enjoy doing. And you have to find the right mix of those things, right? You can't always be doing things that you are bad at and you hate just because they're high value. That's like a recipe for burnout, right? You need to find people around you who can do those things, but you also can't avoid them altogether. By the same token, uh, just because I enjoy doing it and happen to be really good at it, if it's not high value for the company, I also can't spend all my time there. So it's like finding this mix of where I need to be spending my time for my own energy and like skill set to maximize those things, as well as for impact on the company. Um, and being the one, again, where like I'm the gravity now that everything else kind of operates around, making those decisions has been a lot harder than I would have expected it to be. It's more more disorienting, as I said. Um, I think the other thing, and, and this is not a novel thing because everyone says this, is, you know, it's it's lonely at the top. Um, the word I would, I, semantics, but as important is like, it's solitary. Like lonely isn't it. I feel so incredibly well supported. I have a great set of, uh, my team is amazing, right? Best, best team on the planet. Uh, I have a great support system outside of work as well. Um, the, the solitude that you kind of exist in, uh, I didn't expect to, to be as profound, um, as it, as it is. Um, and I don't think there's like a right answer to that. It's just simply a fact of it. And I just, I think underestimated it when I stepped into the role. And then the last thing I would say is that, especially for me, coming from being so early in the company and being there for a long time is I you know in the sense that up until this role, I built the buildings and I walked the streets kind of of a city that I had helped construct or a community that I had helped construct. Stepping into the CEO role, you feel like you're in like a, a helicopter above the city that you helped build, right? You are suddenly removed in a way that was jarring. Um, by design too, people don't want you on the streets in the same way they they want you out of it. You have a totally different perspective. Um, you see breadth where you couldn't see it before. Um, and you see how it all fits together in ways that you didn't before. And so that is unique, I think, to this role. And, and also something I had to get used to, right? That you, you can't kind of walk the streets the same way. Um, and that that altitude perspective, it has limitations. You're not as close to things. And you got to figure out how to stay the right level of close. 
but also has benefit of, you know, being able to see things in a different way that you couldn't see before and hopefully get good insight from that. So those are the three kind of biggest areas for me that have felt so different compared to the roles I was in leading up to uh, stepping into the CEO role. How was the, uh, the, the shape of the culture looked like over the time frame that you've been at the company. Like I saw that you guys have these building the dream sessions with employees, which look, look, look like a lot of fun. So yeah. what's the culture like? Look, uh, my greatest pride uh, of anything at this company has been the culture that we have built over the years. It's not an easy thing to uh, have a half Dutch, half American company in the early days. Um, anyone who's worked for a multicultural organization, right? Different communication styles and ways of doing things. Um, when everything is really fragile and hard at the beginning and very raw, having different cultures was the harder path. And I think there's a lot of really good research now actually coming out about um, how companies that are, or teams that are more diverse, um, oftentimes feel like it's harder to get things done. It doesn't necessarily feel as good to have a diversity of opinions and experiences represented, but the outcomes are better. And I, I am so grateful that that research now is coming out again, referring to a lot of different types of diversity, but I think that's actually something that really has made Bluconic so special over a long period of time is we took the harder route. Uh, we we confronted the fact that um, you can't just build a company kind of homogeneously. We had to build it diversely from the beginning. What does that look like? What does that mean for leadership? How do we do, how do, we do that? And what that has enabled, I think, and there's always work to be done here, so by no means a, a mission accomplished, but it's created just a fabric that's a lot easier to extend into a lot of different places and different types of people. Um, and I will not underestimate, right, the fact that uh, having a Dutch founder and sort of me as the right hand, um, you know, we don't look like a lot of the typical founders of tech companies or like the leadership of tech companies in the early days. And like, we felt that when we were fundraising, you know, maybe not being, we didn't have the Rolodexes, uh, we didn't have the connections, we didn't have a lot of the things that maybe make it, again, easier, but perhaps not necessarily getting you to the best outcome. Um, and I think one of the things that I love about the Blue Crew and what we've created is that people are as committed to creating a company that does things a little bit differently, that that values that it might be harder and less comfortable, but the outcome is better, um, but also has a ton of fun with each other while we do it uh, and just laughs a lot and is just a wonderful group of people who just really value each other. Um, and I, you know, be the first to tell you, like, I could not have had the longevity that I have had at this company, if not for everyone who I've worked with from the beginning and all the people that we've added, you know, along the way, some still here, some not. Um, but that is the backdrop of all of this is this culture of people who, you know, are here to build a dream. We're here to do it together and, and build something really special, whatever that kind of looks and feels like. Um, but I think it's, it's a pretty remarkable accomplishment. Uh, again, I'm not the only one who makes something like that happen, but I've been a part of it for so long that it's like really the part that I think I treasure probably more than anything of what we've done, um, over these years is the people and, and the way we've built the culture up. So this next topic could be a whole nother podcast because <laughs> marketing is constantly evolving and changing. You already brought up some points like GDPR, Google's changes, cookie changes. There's all of these things that are just kind of changing the whole marketing landscape. So what what do you see as what's next in, in the MarTech stack? You know, there's obviously all the discussion of the use of AI and generative AI. Totally. So so what not that you have the crystal ball, but like, <laughs> what, what are your thoughts as the analyst yeah. of the former Forrester analyst would yeah. probably be thinking about? And emphasis on former. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know that I have any of those skills or they would even take me back at this point. Um, so there's a couple of things, right? I think uh, obviously the the generative AI kind of particularly on the content side, right? Marketing is so heavily uh, dependent or heavily um, counted on, I should say for content generation of all kinds, right? This fundamentally changes how we think about marketing's output. But I think much like anything, we're talking a lot about, you know, replacing those people or doing those kind of things and less about, okay, what does that actually then mean for their consumers, right? How do we and their customers? So I think, you know, the enablement of this content creation, content production replication, um, 
is just the next iteration of being able to do some of the personalization types of things at scale, being able to do those actually in the moment. Um, you know, I've always gotten the question of like, well, can Bluconic build me a segment of one? And I've said, yeah, of course you can have a segment of one, but do you have copy and, you know, creative for that segment of one? And the answer is like, oh, no, I guess not. Right. So everything needs to scale. We think about what marketing does um, and generative AI is sort of a big step forward on, I think, the content creative output side of things. Um, so I think that will have a pretty significant impact for sure. But it also goes well beyond the generative AI piece. I mean, I think everything related to being able to make more intelligent decisions, automation, cut down on process, cut down on like overhead to do some of this stuff um, is going to be impactful for marketing. And it's one of the industries I think you, know, you talk to any marketer and they will tell you that they are stretched too thin. <laughs> They're being asked to do too much with too little. Like, I don't think this replaces marketing. I think this just gives marketing the opportunity to do what they're being asked to do without burning everybody out or, you know, constantly pouring more money. You know, marketing has a terrible history of how many people rotate out, right? CMOs have one of the shortest um, tenures of anybody in the C-suite. Part of that is because the expectations are impossible to meet in a lot of these marketing organizations. And I do think AI, again, on the content side, but also on the operational side can have a big impact there. Um, I also think I've been talking a lot about this. I think there is a huge opportunity, whether it's the analyst firms or others, to help marketing buy technology more effectively. You know, I think the the fact of the matter is marketing needs to buy technology on descriptive things like use cases and what we're trying to accomplish and how the team is put together and all of these kind of qualitative attributes of what they're trying to do, waves and magic quadrants and, uh, you know, RFPs are written to be able to check boxes and, and satisfy technical requirements. And I just don't necessarily think that that is serving marketing teams as well as it could. And so generative AI and some of these other tools to be able to process this stuff I think it could be invite a whole new way of buying technology more efficiently and crafting tech stacks that actually suit what it is that you're trying to, to get to. So I see a lot of what's coming next as being more about uh, efficiency and getting smarter with what we're doing, being able to do things that we're already trying to do badly um, or inefficiently or expensively, slowly, uh, being able to do that in a, in a much more uh, sustainable way. That is the kind of stuff that I think AI is perspectively able to help us do. Um, and I would like to see some of that stuff start to happen less. So I think some of like the more cataclysmic predictions, um, or just like doing it so unthoughtfully where we're just spamming people in a new and different way. Right. Like, I think this is an opportunity to actually get right. Some of the stuff we've set out to be doing for the last 20 years, <laughs> rather than, uh, just kind of try to do more of what we're doing today, but you know, with, with a new tool, that's kind of how I think about it. So Clavio went, went public and uh, has been a very successful company in the Boston tech ecosystem. Yet when the founder started that company, um, I bet there was probably naysayers of what they were doing initially first too. Like, oh my God, are you crazy? That's such a crowded space. Why would you be building a company there? And then obviously they've accomplished amazing things. Amazing. So what advice would you have for founders? Because if you look at like those landscape slides of marketing, mar you know, the MarTech stack, it's like you can't even make out the icons of the logos anymore because there's so many companies in MarTech. So I'm not speaking about CDPs. I'm talking about just broader speaking. If you're an entrepreneur that has this idea in, in MarTech and building a company, like what advice would you have on how do you differentiate? You know, how do you still forge ahead to build a business that has value? Yeah. Look, I wish I had a good answer for this. And uh, I I think a lot of investors are going to be struggling, wishing that they had a good answer for that uh, right now going forward. Um, I think there's a couple of things like just core principles that don't necessarily equate to congratulations, you built a company with lasting value. Um, one of them is you have to have such clarity that the problem you are solving is a real problem. Uh, it is not just a problem because you think you have a cool solution to it, but that you have done the research to understand that this is a problem that a prospective buyer has and critically that they will pay for you to solve it for them. And I think a lot of folks get caught up in everyone would agree like, oh, it'd be so cool if we could solve this. But does that mean that they'll pay to solve it? What are the barriers to them actually solving it? Really understanding the full context of what it is that you are stepping into has both created 
why part of why there's so many vendors in MarTech is because there's too many cracks between the answers to all of those questions. Um, and goes back to my point about like, I don't think we buy marketing technology very well, or at least not in service of marketers getting to the outcome. Um, so that is just, you have to have that clarity about this is a real problem and that you can solve it in a way that people will pay for. Um, and that relentless focus on customers, I think is critical. In marketing tech in particular, um, you are selling into folks who, again, are spread very thin, who have lots of technology, um, really honing in on how you're helping them to do their jobs and being prepared to uh, either do like quick and easy type of product or, you know, prepared to be someone who can help them implement, right? That's always been a big tension in our space is the product-led growth folks, like that's great, but that needs to be so, so dead simple in order for it to get kind of traction that you're looking for. If you are doing something, any remote level of complexity in marketing, you've got to have customer success. You've got to have professional services, right? Like you're going to need to have that, especially in the early days. Well, cause you're going to write the playbook, right? Your success is dependent on your customers being successful in those early days. And you've got to be able to write the playbook that's repeatable. So are you prepared for that in our space? I think is a really big one. Um, and then the last thing I will say, right, in terms of kind of creating lasting value um, is the problem that you are solving going to be around in 10 years, right? Or like, where are you in that life cycle? I think hype cycles are kind of trash, but I think conceptually the problem needs to have staying power. Um, and if you can see how you're solving it 10 years from now, uh, just as clearly you can see yourself solving it now. Those are things that if you have good answers for and you're prepared for, I think you are more likely to create a company with lasting value. But uh, I'm not sure I have the, just the, the total crystal ball on like what that could look like because it is really noisy. Budgets are under a lot of scrutiny right now. It's a hard time to kind of do that. Um, but if you get those things right, I think you will maximize the likelihood that you can uh, you can do something special. So as you've been building out the team at Blue Conic, like what's um what would have been the the hardest areas to hire for? Like what what are your what's your hiring philosophy? Is it like engineers are really hard, sales are hard, they're all hard? So I don't know. Yeah, we talk about this a lot. I get you goes to your question about culture. Like even during the heyday when everyone was hiring and you couldn't you know keep people in seats, all stuff. We had an incredibly high retention rate of employees because. We focus on bringing the right people in. And I describe it, our philosophy is sort of urgent, but patient. Um, of course, if we have an open role, there's a reason and we need, there's a business reason and we need to bring that person in. We are, we hire with growth. We're not hiring ahead of time. So we're always, if the role is open, there's a need for that role. Um, I'm not going to rush. If I have reservations, if, if we don't feel like they're the right person, we're not going to take that risk. And we try to be incredibly judicious about that. Uh, I don't just want to butt in a seat. It always backfires. You know that. Um, so, you know, there's our process is incredibly rigorous. It always has been, again, during the heyday, everyone and their mom was writing on LinkedIn. Like, if you can't make a hiring decision in a week, you know, you're going to be shit out of luck. And I was like, well, I will not. So we did. And we missed on candidates who wanted to move quicker. Um, our head of talent, who is just absolutely amazing, Tara Willis, and I always have been in lockstep from day one, that like you do not accelerate artificially. And people, and this is what I always come back to, the right people appreciate that. They also want a rigorous process. They also see it as an opportunity to get to know the people that they are working with. It's mutual if you have the right people. If you've got someone who's like, I expect to be through this hiring process in a week, they weren't probably going to be a good fit for us uh, in a company, right? Like ours, we sort of slow, smooth, smooth as fast sometimes. Like you have an opportunity to show that there. And so knowing your conviction, being pragmatic about that, being really clear, setting candidate expectations, um, I think goes a long way. Um, but, you know, over time, who's been hardest to hire for really just depends on the context. Like it, it there are just roles sometimes that are hard to find. Other times, you know, you find people and and it's no problem. So, but I, I think the po important point for us is like being consistent with the process, being really transparent, not making exceptions. Uh, and that has allowed us to build, again, such a talented group of people who are just amazing and the right ones for us, but also to retain them over a long period of time. All right. So what are three apps you can't live without? <laughs> so this is like such a funny question. I work so hard to not be on my phone. Like I 
hate being on my phone. <laughs> so uh, this is like a weird one for me, but I would say that the three that I can't live without, um, one is I have a Remarkable, which is like a sort of Kindle notebook. Um, and it has a digital app that goes along with it so that I can kind of work back and forth. So the Remarkable's phone app would be one of them for me. Um, my Peloton app, because I travel a lot. And so having that in my pocket is a big one for me would be the second one that I kind of can't live without. Um, and then the third one, I could live without this, but my life would be a little less joyful is this app called Lumi, L-U-M-Y. And it's just this very beautifully designed app that tells you when the sun is rising and what moon cycle we're in. And it's just like one of those lovely, beautiful things that is not essential, but adds a lot of joy and um, happiness to me. So that's my third one. That's what I'm going with. My Remarkable app, the Peloton app, and the Lumi app. Those are all fun apps, though. Sometimes, a lot of times when I talk to you know CEOs, founders, it's like, uh, Gmail, Slack, and my calendar. Yeah, like, who <laughs> wants like, that answer? Uh, like, I'm not giving you that. I'm not giving you that. I won't do it. Those are important. Don't get me wrong. Life would be hard if I didn't have them. But the, like, can't live without. Like, those are, I think, my three. All right. How about a good book or podcast recommendation? It could be business or it could be something more fun. Yeah. So look, I, um, I'm the world's like most enthusiastic reader. Um, reading is my, is my favorite thing. Um, I'll give you two like podcasts. The one that I kind of listen to with the most regularity is, um, plain English with Derek Thompson. It's part of the ringer podcast network. Um, he writes for the Atlantic, but he just writes like super interesting, awesome things. Um, and then for books, um, I just finished reading, which is kind of a generous characterization, but the creative way by Rick Rubin, um, who's the music producer, just like this very beautiful kind of dissertation on creativity and life. Um, again, you don't like really read it per se, you sort of page through it. Um, I also just finished Going Infinite, the Michael Lewis book about Sam Bankman-Fried, because I read, have read everything there is to read about SBF and FTX and all these things. Um, I think everyone was a little hard on that book. I don't think he's nearly as charitable to, to Sam as, as he was kind of getting reputed. Um, and then on the fiction side, uh, I read Demon Copperhead, which is the Barbara Kingsolver take on um, David Copperfield, but set in modern day Appalachia around the opioid crisis. Um, it's really heavy. It's exquisitely well-written, uh, very well worthy of all the accolades it's gotten. So on the kind of serious fiction side, that'd be my my recommendation of the stuff I've read recently. Wow. Great books. I didn't, I wasn't aware about the Rick Rubin book. I, that, like, I mean, they all sound like up my alley, but that one's, I definitely, I want to check that out. Yeah. The creative way is more like a, I don't know, you kind of pick it up and flip to different pages. I don't know. It's very beautiful. It's like more of a meditation. I loved it. All right. Outside of work, what else do you like to do? I mean, obviously, like I said, I love to read. Um, I love to uh, be busy, active around people. I'm also on the board of Big Sister Boston, going to the point Boston roots very deeply. So um, working with that organization to power the potential of girls and women in the greater Boston area is something I spend a lot of time with. Um, and then, of course, friends, family, um, you know, this time of year in particular, I like to do that. And whenever I can for non-work travel, I love to travel uh, and go to new places and experience new things with uh, with my husband and all that. So that's kind of where you'll find me on any given outside of work context. Very cool. Well, Corey, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Obviously all the great work you and the team at Blue Conic are up to and all the great advice. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me.